Hello and welcome to the Stoicism Philosophy as a Way of Life podcast. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Matt Sharp. Matt is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University in Australia. He's spoken at Stoicon in Athens and he's the co-author of Philosophy as a Way of Life and one of the translators of the selected writings of Pierre Hadot, Philosophy as Practice. Um, his most recent book is titled Stoicism, Bullying and Beyond, How to Keep Your Head When Others Around You Have Lost Theirs and Blame You. That's even longer, Matt, than one of my book titles. I thought I had the record for it. And then there's also the book about the French Enlightenment, um, which is, is that out yet or it's coming out soon? It's, it's just come out this month, yeah. Hot off the press, hot off the press. So where are you and what's it like there? I'm in Melbourne, Australia, and um, pleasingly, uh, for this time of year, it's actually a pretty mild day. And your uh, dog's eating your, your puppy's eating your Greek notes. My puppy's just been eating dog's my ancient Greek work. verb tables, um, yeah. but that's, that's been fixed. So a bit of a comic, so, comic aside for the listeners. So how did you get here? Well, how did you end up there with your Greek verb tables and... <laughs> Oh, your your books about philosophy. How, how did you start off in this journey? Why didn't you choose a like a normal career? Like you end up getting into all this stuff. Well, where did it all go wrong, Matt? How it's a you- it's a it's a big question, yeah, isn't it? Um, why do you get into philosophy? Well, I I just sort of was interested in it, you know, like I had a passion for it, and um, my dad just said, look, you know, if if you can keep on doing it and keep on kind of making it work in terms of a scholarship or a potential position, then, you know, I'll back you. And so I sort of did, you know. I, I finished my PhD um, in 2002 and then I, I left the academic space and I was working in the public service and and then I, I managed to secure the position that I am still in and, um, and ever since then I've just been working as a teacher, a researcher and... Um, and, you know, I've just always been interested in, in both philosophy and also, which brings us to the Stoicism, the, the way that it can matter potentially, you know, not just in our heads and as it were as a professional, but in terms of shaping the ideas that shape people's lives. That's the interesting part, I think. I mean, that doesn't seem controversial, but I, re- I can remember a time when people did think that was controversial. Like, I remember when we started doing Stoic Week, some people, and it was mainly academic philosophers and some classicists, kind of sneered at it a little bit. They were like, you know, philosophy is not meant to be a practical thing. It's, you know, it's the pursuit of truth for its own sake. And you guys are kind of implying that there's some other benefit to doing that. You're kind of um, tainting philosophy by combining it with bits of psychotherapy. It was sort of the criticism that they made. Anyway, and I kind of understood where they were coming from, but actually over the past 10 years, I think more and more people have got behind the idea, which I think is a very old idea. Like it was the norm in ancient Greece that maybe, you know, philosophy is a therapy in a sense or, you know, has yeah. has therapy-like benefits. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've also experienced those responses. You know, you do get a kind of, um, as you say, a kind of almost scorn for the idea that, Philosophy might be um, something that could you could take into in, into the marketplace um, and take into 
the public square and take him to the therapy room. Um, at the same time, and this is where Pierre Hardot's work was so profoundly important for me personally, and I know many other people around the world, um, all of a sudden you've got this this really, really high-end classicist philologist who's going back to these texts and just just making the observation, which is really quite clear, I think, in so many of those texts, that for mm-hmm. the Greeks and for the Romans, particularly in the Stoic and Epicurean school, but even more widely, there just was a sense that, you know, philosophy, like any other human activity, is, is directed towards conceptions of the good and conceptions of the good life. You know, Socrates is all about that. You know, he's all about yes. what is it that makes a human life worthwhile? What is it make that makes a human life worth living? And philosophy is, is for him, the best way of, of kind of pursuing an examined and worthwhile life. Yeah, people um, who think this is ridiculous are basically acting as if Socrates was ridiculous because like that he is all about that. Like, and actually, he would have thought that academic philosophy that's completely divorced from that, in his eyes, would probably have resembled what the sophists did more, like or what they used to call heuristics, like or something like that. He for him, well, he didn't think there was that much point in pursuing philosophy unless it improved your character. Yeah, that's right. And and the defence, of course, in the apology is, you know, when he has the opportunity to, it's the second speech where he has the opportunity to kind of um, potentially placate the people who found him guilty. And he imagines someone saying, well, you know, we'll let you free, Socrates, if you just stop doing yeah. philosophy. And at this point he just doubles down and says, well, yeah. philosophy for me is the pursuit of the good life. I've been trying to assist people, talk to people about what makes for a good life. And I've been asking them to take care of their souls more primarily than, than you know, to be concerned with money, with status, with power, all of the things that people are still concerned with and, and that popular culture still promotes as the, the necessary ingredients of, of a good life. Um, and, yeah, for, for him, philosophy was, um, I mean, you mentioned therapy, um, but it was, it was a way of life and it was a way mm-hmm. of improving a person's life, making them more reflective. You know, the unexamined life is is not worth living. Asking them to assess what is important and what's worthwhile. And without that, you know, as as just a kind of exercise in intellectual gymnastics, which Mm -hmm. philosophy can become, particularly Mm -hmm. once it's sanctioned by certain institutional and, Mm -hmm. and thereby financial kind of incentives, I think for him he would have found it quite confusing and it would be fascinating to yeah. to imagine him having some discussions with various representatives of that new way of, of doing things. Do you think he would recognise a modern academic philosophy department as, you know, if we, if we beamed him forward in time and we plonked him into um, a, like a seminar in a philosophy department today, would he be, would he think, this is it, this is what I was hoping you guys would be doing? Or would he, you know, would he be... As I say, I think he'd be confused. I mean, for a start, so much of it's done by writing. You know, whether for Socrates, philosophy was something that you need to do between two people or more people through dialogue. Um, And, you know, the written texts are quite long. And, you know, he was a fan of short question and answers. He didn't like, yeah, long speeches and stuff. He goes on There's actually, there's a moment in Plato's Protagoras where (laughs) Protagoras launches into a fantastic speech and Socrates just says, well, hang on, I I just don't work like that. The great discourse. 
I, I'm a lot slower than you are. I really just like to just break things down. And, he pretends and, he's got a bad memory. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's what, I mean, and it's quite clear from from the text that actually he he holds on to a lot. Um, but he does. He does uh, so you men- you mentioned Pierre Hadot. I guess we should back up a little bit. And mm. could you tell, for the sake of the listeners, could you give them a quick intro to who who Pierre Hadot was, and you know how you discovered him, and and why why the listeners should be interested in his work. So Pierre Hadot, which is H A D O T, I first heard of him in the context of um, of studies of Michel Foucault, uh, who's a much better known academic figure. And in his later works, Foucault returned to look at classical Greek and Roman philosophy in his own way. And um, I thought, well, I'll just go back to the source. I'll, I'll, I'll go back from that and have a look at this guy, Hado, and what's all the fuss about. And so I, I picked up a book called Philosophy as a Way of Life, which, and the subtitle, I think, is something like Spiritual Exercises from Socrates to Foucault. And Hado is, yeah, he's, a, he's somebody who has a very academic training. He's... he's profession was learning how to read old books in multiple languages and that collection is a series of studies of of ancient greek and roman texts and what hutto discovers is that and what he claims is that you can't really understand everything that's going on in those texts if you take a modern perspective you're just looking for kind of technical arguments um, claims about the nature of the universe or language and so on there's this whole other dimension or dimensions which is very clearly about, you know, this is supposed to, this activity of questioning, reflecting, thinking, reasoning, dialoguing, it's actually supposed to change your soul. It's supposed to Why produce... would anyone want to do that? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a good question and, and um, I mean, I, I think many people in the community do want to do that because... yeah. The, the philosophers, as you know, Donald, the, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they diagnose that most people are avoidably unhappy because of the beliefs that they form about what they need to be happy. You know, life's need... of quiet desperation. Yeah, that's the, the, the Pink Floyd line applies. You know, I need the car, I need the job, now I need the promotion, now I need the girl, now I need the other girl, uh, now, I, now I need the kids, and now the kids have got to grow up. You know, there are all, all these kind of ways in which we... We make our happiness conditional on things that we can't necessarily control and that, mm-hmm. as the Epicureans would add, often don't deliver when actually we succeed in getting what we think we want and then we we just feel like, oh, I didn't actually want that at all. And so at that point, you know, the philosophers come in and say, well, maybe the issue is we need to really think about what it is to be human. We need to think about our place in the world and we need to think about what could genuinely fulfil our natures given the kinds of creatures that we are. And so philosophy in that light takes on a very practical component. And I think some of what philosophers were doing in, the, in that period has made its way into, into psychology. And, of course, there are other disciplines as well. Wow. And one That's... of, the, one of the, the kind of scornful responses that we were mm-hmm. discussing before is that I've, that I've had when I say, look, I really work on Stoicism and, you know, I'm, I'm getting involved with some modern Stoic stuff is, oh, that's just psychology. And my inclination is to say, well, sure, absolutely. Um, it, this, it's the logos or study of the human psyche. Um, yeah, and exactly. and that, that's surely something of philosophical note and importance. Well, do you remember back in the old days when everything was made of wood? 
like a long, long time ago, like philosophy and psychology weren't separate disciplines until relatively recently, really until the 19th century. And so it's a weird argument in a way, like because, and I don't know, it's a sense that a result of academia, the industrial revolution, the division of labor or whatever, there's a psychotherapist over there, there's a philosopher over there, it's two different guys. Didn't used to be like that though. Like, you know, these things were integrated. It's kind of artificial schism that we've created between these two disciplines. And it's not like the mind is a separate thing from what we do in philosophy because we use our minds to do philosophy. Like, And actually, particularly if we look at cognitive therapy, cognitive therapy works to a large extent at the level of reasoning and, you know, by helping us to identify errors in our reasoning. You know, it's, there's a really obvious overlap with the whole process of engaging in philosophy. But you're talking about something that goes even beyond that in Pierre Hadot where he's describing not just kind of cognitive intellectual exercises, but even physical or imaginary exercises, perspective shifting, visualization as part of the repertoire of ancient philosophy. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And that that's another, um, I guess, point in Hutto's work, which is so interesting, but it's also created certain sort of criticisms is, you know, Philosophy for Hutto embraced potentially, as you say, forms of exercise that are meant to transform the person so they're able to live out the ideas that they've, you know, theoretically agreed to about the way the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- that aren't just reasoning exercises. So as you as you point out, imaginary kind. Of, well, imagine I'm using the imagination. I would be the way I describe. So the view from above exercise, which I know that many listeners will be familiar with from the Stoic space, is an exercise which I think is perfectly consonant and consistent with Stoic reasoning, for example, Um, but it it involves a process of a person exercising their imagination to visualise, you know. Well, if, if it's true that I'm just one very minute individual in a very large world, with lots of other people, who all of whom have like and potentially for them just as important concerns, then this matters. Um, but I'm going to visualise that by looking at my life from above and, and, and sort of seeing all those other people and seeing myself as kind of like a little ant scurrying around. And so I've got all these things going on this week. I'm really stressed out. I feel like, you know, there's no escape from my own life and it's kind of, it's, it's sort of really a big kind of cosmic thing. And this exercise is really just taking you out of that and enabling you to realise mm-hmm. probably even in the scale of your own life most of the time, not always, but most of the time, a lot of the things that really vex us are, are potentially pretty small. They pass pretty quickly. They don't concern that many people. They won't be remembered. You probably won't remember them in, in a month or two. Mm-hmm. But to get to that sense, you need to be able to take yourself out of the enormity of what you're experiencing on the inside. And, you know, as I say, a lot of academic philosophers say, oh, that's just psychology. Well, so be it, but you're, you're, you're psychologically, inverted commas, uh, experiencing a philosophical assessment of your life um, in ways that just by sitting in a, in a classroom and, and doing certain technical exercises on the modern model, you're not going to be able to do 
Well, in a sense, you could say it's the psychology of philosophy, if there is such a thing. There's philosophy of psychology, but there's also, in a sense, the psychology of doing philosophy. Now, on the one hand, as is, is you're, you're kind of alluding to, it may be that particularly perspective-shifting exercises, like the view from above, um, you know, and maybe looking at, at events from different chronological perspectives or from other people's perspectives or from your own perspective in the future and things like that might allow us to arrive at different insights intellectually or cognitively. But there's another sense in which these things overlap. And I think, if I remember rightly, Hado alludes to it. And I think Epictetus kind of alludes to it as well, which is that our emotional state has a profound effect on our capacity for reasoning. And this is bread and butter of cognitive therapy. When people are angry or depressed, they we know from tons of research that they exhibit predictable cognitive biases so they don't we can't think straight why when we're depressed and when we're angry and i think the you know the stoics say that anger is temporary madness and i think they really understood that if you want to be a philosopher and you want to use reason then you better learn how to maintain your mental health because otherwise you're not going to be reasoning very well and and not only is your reasoning going to be distorted, but it's going to be distorted in ways that you're probably not going to be fully aware of because depressed people don't realize that they have necessarily have a negative cognitive bias, that they're engaged in overgeneralizations and black and white thinking and stuff like that. It's more obvious when we look at other people doing it. We look at someone who's depressed and we think, that guy's not thinking straight. You know, He's kind of distorting everything. He's got a lopsided view of events. There may even be philosophers who have developed whole philosophical systems mm. that are biased yes. by their emotional well, state. I think that's a. I mean, I think that's a really important and profound insight, and it's it's not something that I think that the modern discipline of philosophy for the last few centuries. We can talk about the early modern guys because I think the early modern philosophers were all about that. Um, but that kind of assessment of what are the psychological determinants that might influence what I think to be true or persuasive? And, you know, even with a philosophical study, you know, why am I attracted to a particular philosophy, you know? Um, you know, we, we imagine or we like to imagine as professionals that we're pure minds, you know, sort of sort of assessing evidence, as it were, like a, a, like a chat GBT philosophy yeah. module. Um, but, of course, we're not like that. You know, most, most kids who come to philosophy in their nine, 18, 19, 20, 21, 20, there's a lot going in the, on in their life um, biographically. Um, a lot of hormones. Yeah, and there's history and like so that. on and so forth. And, you know, they come out at 23, 24, 25, and they're, I don't know, a Heideggerian, a Nietzschean, whatever it, it might be, a, a Deleuzean. There, there are various philosophers, a Lacanian um, and so on. And, and one of the things that I, I think attracted me to what Hutto was saying was, was precisely the idea that you were talking about before, Donald, that what if there are preconditions for getting at a, a wise philosophy in terms of the work that you have to do on yourself? And Foucault, to his credit, who I mentioned before, when he goes back to the ancient Greeks, I think he does pick up on that, yeah. this idea of, well, I need to maybe work on myself to make sure that what I'm bringing to the philosophical table doesn't jaundice what I hold to be true. I don't just pick a philosophy that makes me feel good about myself given my present value set, my present emotional state, but rather maybe I need to call into question those things and, and assess whether mm -hmm. they're the, the, the most truth conducive. Um, 
there's even one it's, of them. It's fair to say that I, I think a lot of the more modern, more technical philosophy, because there is that separation of philosophy and psychology, yeah. they don't look at things like cognitive bias, for example, which I know mm-hmm. psychologists have, have taken up. But yeah, like it's a kind of almost undeniable. Like it's, it's we, there's tons of research on it, and it's really pretty clear cut in a way. You know, we can document the sort of bias. It's, it's fascinating. You know, we know like, um, and also the the way that we allocate our attention, which is another factor that, that influences our thinking. I was going to say in Xenophon's memorabilia, there's even uh, a little Socratic dialogue where Socrates is talking to a philosophy student who he, he says is kind of pasty-faced and he doesn't get much exercise and stuff. And Socrates kind of, you know, gives this guy a dressing down and says, do you not think that if you want to be a philosopher, you need to look after your physical health as well? And he persuades the guy by saying, look, if, you're, if your body's unfit, are you not more prone to fevers and things like that and illness? And when you get sick and you have a fever, doesn't that affect your ability to reason? So doesn't it stand to reason that looking after your body would help you to think more clearly? Like, so what, why would you, if you really love wisdom and you love the truth, surely it doesn't make sense to neglect your physical health? The two things are connected. And he, that's straight up his argument. It's only a short dialogue, but it's, it's really crystal clear what the, the point is that he's making there. Yeah, um, and that's, that's to give the contrast, that's completely outside of the scope. Yes. I mean, as, as a teacher, you have a, you know, a kind of pastoral responsibility. And I, you know, I think, there are, there, of course, there are many very, very good teachers out there. But you would be giving that advice to a student almost not today as a philosopher, but as, as something else, you know, a good yeah. teacher. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't be considered philosophical, whereas, you know, clearly in the ancient Greek um, setting, Socrates doesn't sort of think, oh, hang on, I'm just going to step out of being a philosopher now. I'm concerned about your health. Um, yeah. It's just as a philosopher, yeah. if you don't attend to this stuff, you're not going to do a good job. And of course, we I mean, know that, you know, I mean, have, as I say to my students, you know, if you think the mind is completely separate from the body, yeah. maybe have eight beers and then and sort exactly. of try and, try and sit down and read a complex text on mathematics and see how you go. Yeah. Uh, without any sleep, like sit down and retire, go, go a few days without sleep and then try and read Aristotle, you know, or something like that. Obviously, you, you know, you think, oh, well, that wouldn't be a good idea. Like, you know, I need to be in the right frame of mind to properly understand this stuff. You know, and and what if I think with the Epicurean and Stoic stuff, we're getting a vision of philosophy that suggests that a kind of state of mind, which is roughly like something like serenity or tranquility, and there are different words that are used, is somehow necessary for the most philosophical assessment of the world. You know, if you're doing philosophy in a rush, you're going to have a rushed philosophy. Yeah. If you want to take in all the evidence, if you want to roundly consider everything, maybe you've got to open a mental space. But to open the mental space, maybe you've got to do not simply cognitive work, but work on your emotions, work on your way of life, work on your your, your values, what you think are important, because maybe some of the values you're pursuing are stressing you out. Mm-hmm. You know, I've yeah. got to get the promotion. Oh, I've got the promotion. I've got to get the next promotion. Um and there's a lot in, in a text like Seneca's on the brevity of life, this idea of we're constantly, I'll be happy just after the next thing's done, you know, and yeah, then the next I mean, thing gets done and then the next thing appears. It'd be easy to almost all of these things uh, as you're talking about them, you know, like the point that you've just made is really familiar 
from modern evidence-based psychotherapy. It's integral to one of the leading protocols for, te- for treating clinical depression, actually. Like the almost the identical thing that wouldn't you could have said that in a session doing behavioral activation, like for clinical depression, and it would have wouldn't have seemed out of place at all. It's exactly the sort of point that's integral to that approach. Like so, I mean, philosophy has a much in that regard has a much bigger overlap with psychotherapy with modern psychotherapy, I think that than many people realize, and that brings me back to Pierre Hadot actually, and uh, something I wanted to kind of pick your brains about a little bit. Because you know Pierre Hadot's writings better than I do. Now, I first discovered Hadot because, in a roundabout way, I was interested in Gnosticism and I was interested in comparative religion as a young guy. And I, I got into Plotinus and I read Hadot's book, Plotinus mm. on the Simplicity of Vision, right? And that kind of got me then reading his other books, Then a Citadel Philosophy as a Way of Life, What is Ancient Philosophy? and more into Stoicism. Um, But what struck me about Hadot was he had a lot to say, interestingly, about the parallels between religion and ancient philosophy. So philosophy as a way of life he saw as overlapping with early Christian mysticism um, and Christian contemplative practices in a way that people had kind of underestimated before. He saw there was a kind of organic development of the Christian contemplative practices out of earlier pagan or pre-Christian contemplative practices. But somehow then in philosophy, we kind of remove all that, but it remains to some extent in in the, the history of, of Christianity. And he talked about that. He, he compares philosophical exercises to uh, spiritual exercises. Um, and it, it seemed jarring to me i loved hiddo's work but something about it seemed really peculiar um from my point of view as a psychotherapist which was that in none of the books that i read by him did he ever mention parallels between uh, these spiritual exercises or contemplative practices and modern psychotherapy and that seemed glaringly obvious to me mm, mm. and i wondered if that was because he was french and let me explain because psychoanalysis is more, still to this day, more popular in France, partly because of the kind of intellectual culture there. And cognitive behavioral therapy didn't take off in France and to the extent that it has in America and in the UK, right? And I thought maybe Hado isn't familiar with other approaches to psychotherapy because he maybe wouldn't see obvious parallels between mm these contemplative exercises and the stuff that's done in in Laconian psychoanalysis or Freudian psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. But if he'd seen cognitive behavioral therapy, he he wouldn't have been able to resist making analogies. It seems odd to me that he would say, oh, this is just like stuff we find in Christianity and not say it's also, I mean, it's indistinguishable almost from stuff that is common practice in cognitive behavioral therapy. And it, it really struck me that that was like a major gap in his writings, but I attribute it partly to the, the culture in which he was working. Yeah. Look, I, 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 think you're, I think you're probably right. I mean, I just sense that he doesn't, he just doesn't know the material. He just doesn't have access yeah. to the material. I mean, he was a very, I think he was a very generous minded scholar and uh, open minded. And if he, if he, as you say, if he was exposed to that material, I think the, 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 the crossovers are so evident. Um, his 
his second wife, Ilse Trautado, um, whose book on Seneca I'm, I'm slowly translating, she talks more about um, modern psychology, but she's cons- and and the way that it might, um, I guess, be conversant with some of the ancient material. She's looking at Seneca as a spiritual director, as somebody who, with mm-hmm. Lucilius, for example, is kind of playing the role of of you know something like we would consider a therapist or a, or a life coach or something like this. Um, but again, I think I think her models which I imagine, you know, she may well have conveyed to Pierre, were, as you say, they weren't, I think, the kinds of models of psychology that you're thinking about. They were more probably post-Freudian depth yeah. psychology kind of approaches. Like most university departments, when they think about psychotherapy, they still think about like Freud and depth psychology and stuff like that, which is weird because among many clinical psychologists, not everywhere, but in many places, particularly in the UK, that's seen as a kind of historical artifact. Like that's like alchemy or something. It's like a whole different era. Like it's gone mm. now. Like the 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 kind of era of depth psychology. Um, so it's very far behind the times in a sense. Um, but I, I I mean, if I could speak to Pierre Hadot, I would have said to him very simply that Albert Ellis who was the original pioneer of cognitive therapy. And cognitive therapy is now the leading evidence-based form of modern psychotherapy. Ellis said that Stoicism was the philosophical inspiration for what he did. And he mentions the Stoics and the Epicureans many times Mm. throughout his writings, very explicitly, like drawing on them. Um, He even draws inspiration from Plato's Apology as well. So there's a, a very explicit connection yeah. And Aaron T. Beck, who's the, the most famous kind of early researcher in cognitive therapy, pioneer of CBT for depression, also explicitly says that stoicism was the original philosophical inspiration. That's the phrase that he used for cognitive behavioral therapy. So, yeah, I don't think he had probably just wasn't even aware of that these guys explicitly saw stoic philosophy and maybe Hellenistic philosophy more generally as the direct precursor. Yeah, the kind of so- a set of sources and, and quoted until, it. Yeah, people to talk to, if you like. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think what you say is, 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 is correct. You know, I think um, if Hado had known of, um, of people like Alice and so on, um, I think he would have, you know, really sincerely engaged in it because he's very clear that ancient philosophy is therapeutic, you know. And, and and what starts a person on an Epicurean or Stoic journey is a sense that their life isn't going as well as, as it might be. But what the philosopher then intervenes and says is, well, as, as we've talked about, well, you need to change your beliefs. You need to reflect upon your beliefs, your values, your desires, your wishes, your aversions. Mm-hmm. And let's check those out and let's have a look at those and, and, and let's think our way through them and, and, and talk our way through them and see if we can't, recognize that some of them might be based on mistaken mistaken orientations that philosophy can can redirect you um to a different vision of what's important Um, i'm going to tell you something not a lot of people know about the history of psychotherapy because i'm a bit of a nerd about it right like so it's kind of one of my favorite subjects so i've i would make the case that cbt was originally inspired. Ellis in particular quotes the Stoics a lot. However, there's another guy that everyone's forgotten about, like except massive nerds about the subject like me, right? 
Freud was not the only show in town at the beginning of the 20th century in terms of psychotherapy. He had a rival. Like There was a guy called Paul Dubois, who was a Swiss neurologist. He was very famous at the turn of the century, and he presented a psychotherapeutic system that was very popular, very widespread in the UK and America and throughout Europe called rational psychotherapy, or sometimes it was called persuasion psychotherapy. It spawned many variations, and it was the main rival for Freudian psychoanalysis for decades, maybe roughly almost half a century before it fizzled out completely. And Paul Dubois, Ellis was quite into Epictetus, right? He doesn't mention Seneca. He talks about Marcus Aurelius a bit. Paul Dubois was really into Seneca, and he would prescribe reading Seneca's letters to his patients, Mm. And actually, the bits of Seneca that he draws on are, are, are the bits that CBT doesn't mention as much. So he talks a lot about the dichotomy of control, and he talks a lot about determinism, funnily enough, and the therapeutic value of having a more deterministic outlook. Because Dubois thinks it, it, it allows people to be more forgiving. You know, he thinks if we're determinists, then if somebody's rude to us, we think, well, they were rude for a reason. it's their genetics and upbringing and stuff like that and he thinks if you kind of think that way and you understand that there's a lot of antecedent causes that have led to someone's obnoxious behavior then it it prevents you kind of blaming them in a sort of emotional you 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 Mm. you, you think about it in a more reasonable way you think Mm. you know you kind of think well they don't know like um ideas in in the early modern thoughts of spinoza you know yeah, like much if like someone, if someone gets involved in a road rage incident with you, if you if you're able yeah. to, yeah, to to reason that probably there's a whole series of causal chains that are exactly. making that person feel very bad about themselves in this moment, and then acting out in the way that they have, then you you are likely to 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 be less heated up yourself and more able to to be forgiving. I think um, so. Where, whereas precisely if we don't think through where the other person might be coming from and what might be shaping what they're doing, then we're more inclined, paradoxically maybe, to sort of be somehow upset um, and to to blame them uh, and to take exception to what they're doing and to experience anger and and with the the desire for revenge and and, and retribution and so on. I'll I'll do a lot of a bit of a deep dive for a second and make a kind of technical point about this psychologically which is that we know that when people are angry or depressed or anxious, they tend to focus on individual stimuli that exacerbate their feelings, right? Mm. So if somebody's anxious, they'll look for signs of danger in their environment and kind of put them under a magnifying glass and ignore possible signs of safety that might be in their environment. So they they, they get really focused in, like... Mm on individual things that that distress them. Whereas if somebody has a broader perspective, they're responding to multiple competing stimuli. So there might be things like a sharp knife that evokes feelings of danger, but then there might be friends that are protecting you that evoke feelings of safety. And so you end up with a more nuanced, complex and balanced emotional response, right? And so if you're looking at someone and they call you a name, call you a rude name, Matt. Like they would never do that. But like if they call, if they kind of said, if you were to say, Donald, you're an idiot or something like that. Like, and I just think he's just doing that out of pure malice. 
then I'm concentrating my mind like a magnifying glass on the idea of pure malice as your motive. Mm. And so mm. my emotional response is going to be to that monolithic idea. But if I think, well, you know, Matt said a bunch of things over time. Sometimes he said nice things, sometimes he said not, you know, and it may be that he talks to other people like that, but sometimes he doesn't. And I have a more rounded and balanced understanding of your motives and your background. Then I'm taking in lots of competing stimuli, like, and they're going to balance mm. each other out. Like, it's not that's, just... that's meaningfully a more philosophical way of looking at it, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a, like, it's a truer way. Because it's, it's it's very rare for people to be motivated by pure malice, you know. It's a multifactorial I mean, perspective, mm. like where we think that there are multiple things that combine those genetics, education, upbringing, like amount of you know, sleep, um, amount of sleep, recent your hormones, you know, yeah, um, your cognitive biases. Like, and when I think about that, like, you know, I have different emotional responses to each of these things. And so they combine together and kind of balance each other out and it's a more nuanced and rounded emotional response. Yeah. And this, and this is, to, this is the, the kind of psychological background, I think, for the, for, you know, a real criticism of a lot of the social media that we have and the way that oh, totally. with all of the algorithms, they also are working to focus in on particular environmental data that confirm a perspective and sort of push that perspective into a more extreme and simplified lens, which, as you say, also involves screening out all this other stuff. You know, it's just that they're doing this. They're motivated by pure malice. There's a great danger. It's quite immediate. We have to do something about it. We've got to talk about it together and, 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 and share this feeling and share this, this lens on the world that's showing up the other in this way. And it, it's, it, it produces, it produces polarization as, as people have talked about and, and it produces the, the potential for incivility and, and for a less complex set of political possibilities um, that are ultimately. Is all of this in your book on bullying? What's that? Is this is this in your book on bullying? No, no, it's 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 it. Well, it's 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 not unrelated, but um, it's I'm just more thinking through Politics the situation we find ourselves in politically. I mean, less so I think in my country than in other more notable countries around the world. Um, but definitely, I mean, there there are, there are real crossovers in terms of all of these subjects, and the crossovers concern. This, this thing we've been talking about, which is that, you know, what are the preconditions of having a philosophical perspective? And someone like Hardo directs us to think, well, maybe they are really, there's, there's quite a few of them. And as you say, they might, they might be biological, they could be psychological. Um, and, 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 and our historical setting, our political setting also shapes, shapes the kinds of positions that we take and, and also our technologies, you know. If our experiences of the world are mediated by technologies and those technologies are shunting us into certain ways of thinking, then we oughtn't to be surprised to see more and more of, of the kinds of polarisation and anger and distrust that you can see unfolding in, in certain political cultures. In that case, do you think there are parallels between the role or the problem that Socrates and other philosophers saw with political orators and sophists 
in classical Athens and the problem that we currently encounter with the news media, politicians and social media and influence, I guess, social media influencers to me seem kind of, in a sense a kind of rhetoric, office. isn't it? It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a very artful, often very artful, <laughs> um, self-presentation, presentation of an idea, um, in such a way that, you know, it, it can be, it can be very convincing, but it can also be very partial, of course, because, you know, when you, when you're pushing a particular perspective or trying to sell a particular product, you know, there is certain kinds of information you want to screen out, <laughs> And there's and these, only certain kinds of information you want to include. I always, I always say to my some... student, you know, the, the, the problems with, with problems with rhetoric, imagine this, you have to give a speech at your best friend's mm. 21st. This is not the time to really delve into what might be real, that maybe this person is like all of us, limited, flawed, and for, on occasion has acted badly and acted poorly. This is not the occasion. A 21st speech is a, is a laudatory speech. What we want to mm-hmm. hear about and what the person, in a sense, in this setting deserves to hear about is is the good things that they've done, the good experiences that you've shared. Um, so rhetoric is it's a technique. Mm-hmm. And from a Stoic perspective, any technique because it's not yet virtue, can be used for good or evil. And, of course, that's Socrates' mm-hmm. perspective. So, you know, from a Stoic perspective, should we say, you know, social media is all bad? No, it's, 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 it's a medium and it's in between good and evil, but it sure as hell can be used for both. Yeah. And maybe some of the ways that it uses I mean, I see philosophy in some regards as ancient philosophy in, in a sense, I think evolved in part as a way of helping people to counter certain effects of rhetoric, to help them spot fallacies, for example, and to realise when they were being duped by demagogues and uh, and or prote- char- intellectual charlatans, like maybe some of the sophists, for example, to kind of see through um, misleading arguments and the, the use of the art of persuasion. And that would be very relevant, you would think, Today, when we're with the, the you know, because the the sophists are um, in our living room, like <laughs> you know, they're like in our in our pocket. We carry I, them around in our pocket and our mobile phones. They're, they yeah, they're, they're, they've yeah. sneaked up on us. Yeah. You used to have to go to the um, the academy or the, you know to a wealthy gentleman's house in Athens to hear a, a sophist <laughs> speak. But now they're in your mobile phone, in your pocket, and on your laptop. Oh, they, like they'd love, home. they'd love social media. You know, I think they've infiltrated it's, our homes with yeah, their rhetoric. Yeah. Well, in the ancient world, as many of your listeners will know, um, adult education, as we would call it, you know, was really from early on. The, the rhetoricians were the first game in town, and then the philosophers came along. And as you say, the philosophers were responding, as we see so vividly in the Gorgias and various other of the Platonic dialogues, which are based on exchanges that Socrates has with with sophists like Hippias or Protagoras or indeed Gorgias. Um, so quite literally, if you wanted to do adult education beyond the kind of basic curriculum in your adolescence, you would either go to a rhetorician school mm-hmm. or you would go to a philosopher's school. Mm-hmm. And with someone like Socrates, as you say, you're seeing a critical ethos being developed and a set of critical analytic tools to work out, you know, well, that sounds really good. I'm excited about it. 
But is that an argument for it relative to mm. the claims that it's making about the world? You know, I hear a lot of students say when they get into a philosopher, I really like this person's philosophy. Yeah. And the Socrates in me goes, that's not really relevant. Do you think yeah. it's true? And do we always think that what we like and what is true are, you know, kind of coincident? Uh, I can think of all kinds of situations in, we might, in which we might like a lot of stuff, which is flattering. Yeah. But not true. Yeah. Makes me yeah. feel good about myself. You know, Matt, you're an amazing guy. You know, you know all the best people. Um, you're, a, you're a genius. Um, flattering, probably not true. Well, what do you call an expert in telling people things that they like to hear? You know, I mean, that, that's, that's rhetoric, like that sophistry, you know. And social media, because of the very way it functions, I think actually the ancient sophists, let me take a step back, had competitions. And they, in a sense, they would indirectly compete with each other because they were in a kind of marketplace mm. um, being paid fees, varying fees for their work. But also they would literally have competitions against one another. Um, you know, you, you kind of see this in the symposium even where people give different speeches about the nature of love and it's kind of like a bit of fun and games, but sometimes mm. it also be became more competitive and more serious. And yep. social media does something like that as well based on likes and the way that the algorithms function. So, you know, Socrates thought this was dangerous because people would learn to tell the audience what they wanted to hear mm. like, and whatever got the biggest round of applause and whatever commanded the highest fees. You know, yep. after a while, sophists are going to stop speaking the truth if people don't like it and don't want to pay them for it. But we have the same problem today with social media influencers who say things that they quickly learn are going to get more views. And so we get clickbait. Yeah, like, and that's we get right. sensationalism, uh, and we get rage farming, yeah, and stuff like Because if you want yeah, people's well. attention, you make them yeah. scared and angry. Yeah, and so this is one of the reasons why I wanted to work a little bit on the on the the thinking of the the French Enlightenment because, I mean, I think it's been it, that period of intellectual history has been terribly misunderstood on both elements of the left and elements of the right. Um. And, and the book is framed really around their bases, their basic starting point is in in early modern thinkers like Francis Bacon, John Locke, and a guy called mm -hmm. Pierre Bale. And they were all about analysing how the human mind works to screen in and screen out. They're interested in cognitive bias. So yeah. Francis Bacon talks about the idols of the human mind. Mm -hmm. And the first one of them is is really what we would call cognitive bias. Um, we, 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 we screen the environment for ideas that are pleasing to us um, mm. or that might activate certain kinds of emotion. And then we screen out what he calls negative instances, which are ideas mm. or examples or stories that might contradict where we've gone with our ideas. Mm -hmm. Or else we turn on the spokespeople of those negative instances we attack the person. We we go ad hominem, as the philosophers would say. We shoot the messenger. Yeah, that's right. And for Bacon, unless we became aware of the idols of the human mind, what became science wouldn't become possible because he was one of the, the proponents and celebrants of what became the modern scientific idea. 
and you had to become aware of the idols of the mind, your, your, your tendency to believe flattering, over-simple, often over-extreme ideas, to become aware that when you're investigating any subject, that, that's all going to be constantly presenting itself and pushing you to sort the ideas in particular directions. And a new form of understanding of the natural and social world he believed was only going to be possible once we'd made that analysis and once we produced inquirers who were trained to self-assess. Uh, and then that gets picked up by Locke and, and, and Pierre Bale and then it's taken into figures like Voltaire and um, and Diderot who, who become the kind of key proponents of, of the French Enlightenment. And I think they would be sadly very, very concerned about elements of modern popular culture as really taking us back into the kinds of fanaticism that they were concerned to oppose. I definitely think so. Like, I mean, what's the connection, just to tie up a couple of different themes that we've been talking about, so to what extent did those thinkers draw upon uh, ancient philosophy, in particular Stoicism? I think they were all still, they may have been, this may, may be the last period in which the, amongst the kind of, you know, intellectual elites, of course, education was still by our standards very restricted. That always needs to be recognised. But within that restricted sphere, I think that those generations of the 18th century and into the early 19th were the last in which they had a, a continuous kind of exposure and familiarity with with a lot of the philosophy that the modern Stoicism movement, for example, is bringing back um, via the Renaissance. They they all knew their, their Stoics. They all knew their Epicureans. They all knew their Plato. They all knew their Aristotle. Diderot, for example, his last book mm-hmm. was on Seneca. Mm-hmm. It was a long introduction to a new translation that had been made, well, the first French language translation that had been made of Seneca's um, oeuvre. And so in that introduction which becomes a book he just goes through each of the texts and sort of undertakes to respond to them um on the basis of his own concerns and so on so on so forth but voltaire was a huge fan of marcus aurelius he was a huge Mm -hmm. fan of of epictetus actually Mm -hmm. um a huge fan of seneca um and you know again i think they were still within that culture which recognized that so for example Voltaire's main bugbear is what he calls fanaticism. Mm-hmm. Fanaticism is the passionate, excited embrace of an idea that may not be true, but which you become fanatical about. It's quite exciting, you know. You've got this new idea and you, you passionately identify with it. Um, and then, of course, you, you act in certain ways um, towards those who don't embrace that idea. So fanaticism often has a flip side, which is persecution, persecution of those who don't agree. You're so convinced that this idea is true and wonderful that you either try to convert others and if they don't wish to convert, you move into a kind of more persecutory mode. Um, the, op- the philosophy, he says here in the entry in his philosophical dictionary, is the only cure for fanaticism. Mm-hmm. It's a very ancient conception mm-hmm. um, because philosophy can en- enable you to sort of say to yourself, well, this is exciting, but is it true? Um, this is a view of the good life, but how does it, what kinds of 
behaviors does it promote towards towards these other people you know who aren't protestants mm-hmm. um so his treatise on toleration for example starts with this awful story of um jean Calas, who was a the the father of a young guy in a, in a fiercely catholic town um and, and and his son had committed suicide and the catholic fanatics in that town got it into his head that the father had killed the son because the son was going to con- convert hmm. from protestantism to catholicism and this is all false and and it, he ended up being lynched um by this kind of catholic mob um who are evincing what Voltaire calls fanaticism. Mm-hmm. They selected the, the data in the environment, young man in a vulnerable situation, committing suicide, distressing situation. They projected onto that a series of ideas. You know, bad people are always going to act in, in such a way. And, 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 and they acted out on that. And this for Voltaire was precisely the kind of action that we want to prevent in a more enlightened society. And, you know, I look mm-hmm. at some cases of of behaviour where extremists are again acting out in the modern world, and I I really worry that Voltaire would think we haven't really got ourselves sorted out regarding fanaticism. We've still got Matt, we we still have Christian sectarian violence in Scotland, parts of Scotland, and Glasgow, in the in Northern Ireland, and like in, in places like Belfast and, and Glasgow. To yeah, some and, and we still have non non Christian forms of extremism. I was thinking about you know the, the Pizzagate story. This guy oh, convinced yeah. by social media that there's this you know nefarious plot centering on a, a pizza place in was it DC and going mm-hmm. in loaded up with a shotgun. You know, yeah. I've um, heard a little joke about that actually. When I was a kid and I grew up in the west coast of, of Scotland in a place called the Ayrshire. Like it's predominantly Protestant. There was a few Catholics and stuff, but if people wanted to kind of start an argument with you, they'd sort of ask you whether you're a Protestant or Catholic. And when I was a young guy, I was getting into philosophy and I, I kind of flirted with Buddhism and like I started studying Hindu, the Upanishads and stuff like that. And I thought it was kind of cool, like when I was seventeen or something. And one of the local tough guys said to me, "Are you a Protestant or a Catholic?" Which is usually how a kind of fight starts. Uh, and I said, I thought he'd been clever. And I said, actually, I'm a Buddhist. Like, and he said, aye, but you're a Protestant Buddhist or a Catholic Buddhist. Because <laughs> <laughs> his tiny mind could only comprehend two possibilities. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the kind of thought process that someone like Bacon's going to, you know, that any new data has to get fitted into our existing our existing yeah, categories, I'm... you know. So are you a Protestant? I mean, it's a lovely response. Are you a Protestant Buddhist or a Catholic Buddhist? You know, it's a great question. Like, you have to be one <laughs> or the other, right? Like, but this is, so yeah, these are, this idea of cognitive biases, we, we, we know a great deal from psychological research now, but it, it's kind of implicit in a lot of ancient philosophy. The whole point of the Socratic method and of philosophical dialectic and logic is to try and get us beyond mm. these biases. Yes. And, I think of ancient philosophy, starting with the natural philosophers, I think I think of the basic construct um, underlying a, a great deal of ancient philosophy is the distinction between appearance and reality. It's always been a, a, a you know a kind of motif 
uh, in the Western philosophical tradition and, and in the East. But with, even with the natural philosophers, they were all about saying, you know, when there's thunder and lightning, you guys think it's the gods or whatever, but maybe it's not as it appears, like, and it's caused by some kind of physical phenomena. And so they're constantly getting people to question appearances mm. and look beyond them for a, a more naturalistic explanation. And, and I think that's, that's a really important distinction for the for the, the distinction between sophists and philosophers. You know, yeah. sophists are, are manipulators of appearances. They have a certain kind of wisdom. Exactly. Uh, at least a technical craft, which is what are people uh-huh. going to like? What are they going to buy? Given what I want to do with this cl- this class, this audience, and so on. Whereas well, man, man is the measure of all things. Supposedly, Protagoras said, at least in, in the Theaetetus, mm. right, that man is the measure of all things. Gets interpreted as the idea that appearance is truth. Yeah, whether you know Socrates is, is as you say, he's going to conduct a dialogue with you that gets you to examine whether what you're saying might be true. And mm. you know, the, the older I get, the more I appreciate Socrates and. I think what he's doing in those kind of, you know, those dialogues where nothing seems to happen, just somebody has an opinion and then Socrates breaks it down and the dialogue ends at the point where it's it's often called aporia, like a dead end. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think what he, what Socrates is doing by questioning a, a person, getting them to challenge their own beliefs, and he asks them to, to speak truthfully, they must only express what they think is true. Yeah, He's trying to get them to see that, from within, as it were, the space of their own ego, they're holding contradictory beliefs and giving them the opportunity, once they've had that recognition, to go down a different path. And a lot of characters, their ego just takes over. When they, when they realise that they've, they've been made to look like a fool, their ego kicks back in and they walk away. And they, yeah, no, they accuse Socrates of just being a nasty person and kind of persecuting mm-hmm. them. And then there are some characters who go, well, that's really interesting. Socrates has led me through questioning to realise that, I thought I knew a lot of stuff and actually I don't know it and I hold contradictory opinions and maybe I've got some work to do. And Some and, people find it liberating. That's right, yeah, and, and I really feel that as a teacher, you can see this with students, um, it's, it's a great methodology um, and, and, and the kind of lecture paradigm we often work with because it's not dialogic, it's more like Protagoras, you get up in front of the class and here's 50 minutes. It doesn't allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you run a class Socratically, you get students to own their own opinions and examine their own opinions. And this becomes more like a spiritual exercise, as Hutto would say, because potentially mm-hmm. they might come out of that experience with a, with a different set of possibilities and ideas and they went in. More whereas with a lecture, you're just basically giving them another worldview, if you like. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. You know, and like Socrates thought the danger with lectures was the same as the danger with oracles and the danger with books. Like he said, you're not able to question. You just, you end up just learning things. Mm. Like, you know, but to really understand, you have to be able to question the person that's making the pronouncement. And that's, 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 I think that's spot on. And one of the the things that I've been reflecting on over over the last, you know, decades as, as I reflect on my own education within the kind of modern system is, you're taught to admire an author, for example, and you become mm. a follower of an author. But an author makes hundreds of different claims. <laughs> so when you're admiring an author, you kind of bundle them all together and you say, yeah. they're mine. And this is a really unsocratic thing because every every yeah. human is likely to say a bunch of stuff that is true and valid and well thought out 
and mm-hmm. probably a bunch of stuff that isn't. But if mm-hmm. I'm just a, a Robertsonian or a Sharpian, mm-hmm. then I've I sort of I'm encouraged yeah. to buy the whole bundle. Yeah, hook, line, and sinker. And again, again, I think the Socratic method enables you to say, you've written a book and there's 80 claims. We're just going to talk about each. (laughs) But it's worse than that, Matt. It's worse than that because you might say something that's true in a particular context, but it might end up being true. For example, you might say Donald water boils at 100 degrees centigrade. And that might be true most of the time. Under certain and, atmospheric conditions, yeah. Unless you're in the Alps or whatever, like, mm. and then at a different altitude, it boils at a, a different temperature. Like, and so often, you know, I think Socrates was aware of this, that verbal formula can hold true most of the time. But then you find yourself in a... Like, he was all about encouraging people to spot exceptions. Yeah, and that's the rules super important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's Bacon says that science will begin in a sense when we're capable of generating methodologies that prime inquirers to look for stuff that contradicts their beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> and you get that with Popper and the idea of falsifiability. What makes a theory scientific is that it, it is in principle able to be, it makes a series of claims that you could test and you could be wrong. Yeah. And a position's not like that when it's like, here's my world vision and there's nothing you can say that I can't accommodate in that vision. That's psychologically comforting for me if I've got that vision, but it's not scientifically sound and it's not going to enable intellectual change, intellectual development or intellectual growth. I'll tell you a piece of psychological research that you might find interesting and it's it's particularly referenced in the acceptance and commitment therapy or like ACT literature. So there are studies on role following behavior now like rule following is actually you know a topic in itself in in linguistic philosophy and modern and modern philosophy but uh rule following in psychology one of the the most notorious studies shows that if you have two groups and they have to perform a task like pressing a button a certain number of times and they get a reward if they do it properly but if they do it wrong, they maybe they get a, an electric shock or like some kind of punishment or something like that. And so you have one group who have to figure out the right way of doing it through trial and error. And then you have another group who are told verbally or they're mm. given instructions on a piece of paper. This is the way to do it. Yeah. Says, this is the way to do it. And then you get the reward, right? So this is stage one of the experiment. In stage two of the experiment, the rules change. Like, And so it used to be that you press the button three times to get a reward. Now you have to press it four times, right? Now, the group that figured it out themselves through trial and error learning, when the rules change, like it used to work when they pressed the button three times. Now when they do that, they get an electric shock. So it doesn't take them long to think, maybe we need to try something else. And they adapt more quickly to mm. the change in the environment, right? Mm. However, the other group who were given a bit of paper saying you have to press the button three times will continue far longer to follow the wow. old rule, yeah. even though it's no longer working for them and they might even get punished for doing it. Now, the reason that's so interesting for psychologists is one of the big enigmas of psychotherapy is why do people continue to use coping strategies that are clearly not working. not working for them? And one reason may be that they've, been, they've acquired the knowledge verbally and they treat it as a rigid rule governed piece of behavior 
Whereas if they figured it out more from trial and error learning, they would be more primed to adapt their behavior. Mm. The coping strategy no longer seems to be working. Now, that reminds me of the difference between Socrates and the sophists, because the sophists taught people verbal formulas. They would just stand and lecture them, and Mm. they would say justice is helping your friends and harming your enemies or whatever. Like, you know, wisdom consists in realizing that man is the measure of all things. And people would write that down and go, that's really clever. I'll go away and memorize that. But Socrates didn't give stock answers like that. He encouraged mm. people to try and figure it out for themselves. They had to go through the process of a kind of form of trial and error learning, like you could see the, the Socratic method as, you know, and that has a subtle benefit that when they're in a situation and the rule no longer seems to apply, they would be more likely naturally to adapt to the exception. Whereas someone who'd learned it from a book or an oracle or an orator would be more likely to continue trying. So Socrates gives the example in Xenophon's memorabilia of somebody who he asks to define what constitutes justice or injustice. And they say, well, injustice would be lying. And Socrates says, sure, but what about if you're an elected general and you lie to the enemy? And they say, okay, yep. well, that, that's different. That's different then, right? Mm, mm. So maybe... Then maybe you have to come up with a new, a new, a new revised yeah. understanding. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just going to accommodate. Yeah. Somebody who thinks, no, lying is always wrong, like even mm, in that situation, mm, mm, has mm. maybe got an overly rigid conception of it. Then yeah, maybe they, that's Emmanuel Maybe Kant's they read it in the conception. Bible. Or mm. they, yeah. Yeah. Like, mm. You know, uh, so they're wedded to a rule that doesn't actually apply anymore in this unusual but what seems like an exceptional circumstance might actually become the norm if your environment changes. You yep. get recruited into the army. Like now you have to follow different rules. You're in a different environment. All of a sudden, different rules apply, for instance. Or you have you have kids. Like, so now maybe you're in a different environment and different rules of communication suddenly apply. Yeah, you know, absolutely. What works in the, the military doesn't really work when you're talking to your two-year-old. Like... So I think this idea... Maybe there are crossovers there. <laughs> there, might, there might be some like, maybe some parallels. Like, maybe some things that work in both situations. But definitely, I think the Socratic method is more like know-how rather than knowing that. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it reminds me and, of and trial, you have to, trial you have and to, error. You have to sort of do it. You have to participate in it. You, and there are these funny moments in the dialogues where Socrates says, you know, I really am going to insist that you say what you think is true. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, there's no point in going ahead with this if you're just going to say what you think is going to please me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a character like Callicles in the Gorgias, who is a sophist, a fairly, fairly formidable sophist, at a certain point he just gets frustrated with Socrates showing, showing up that he has contradictory beliefs. And he just says, I'm just going to say whatever you think is, is true, Socrates. And so he says, no, 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 it's not going to work like that. We may as well stop talking at this point if you're just going to try to please me, um, which is, of course, what a lot of us perhaps want to hear at different times in our lives when we're yeah. conversing with others. But for Socrates, it's precisely that that, that that makes the game of the dialogue not philosophical anymore. It, it brings us back, I guess, to this idea of, like, you know, sophistry. And this would be the saying what someone wants to, what you think they want to hear, is, is again kind of giving the appearance of engaging in, uh, in dialectic rather than actually engaging in dialectic. So I think it brings us full circle, and maybe that's a good point at which to, to wrap things up for today. 
Um, I think we already mentioned your latest, but we mentioned your book on bullying um, and also the book that you have about the French Enlightenment. I wondered if you wanted to... Uh, when, when is that book out again? So the book on the Enlightenment's just come out um, uh-huh. with Roman and Littlefield. Um, yeah, a series called Off the Fence. But the book on bullying, yeah, came out last year. Um, and obviously different different topics, you know, but we've been talking, I think, about some of the reasons why someone who's interested in Stoicism might yeah. come to the French Enlighteners, you know, both because they're interested in and working in some cases on Stoic ideas, but also because I think they belong to that same tradition of philosophy as post-Socratic and as about trying to, trying to do work on ourselves potentially individually but also maybe as a society to to become more um truthful and more flexible you know it's, it sounds easy but you know a, a lot of it is about a lot of it is about thinking independently but you know thinking independently can also go badly it's also thinking yeah. with you know a set of <laughs> truth productive standards that you recognize and that you hold yourself accountable to you know you know, because people who believe in all sorts of weird stuff think that they're thinking independently at times. I think increasingly so. Like, there's a, so one, there's of, a lot one of the things about the, the, in the Enlightenment book that I really talk about is this idea of self-estrangement, which is actually a stoic uh-huh. exercise. Yeah. It's what would other people say about what we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we disagree with them, but what do they think about us? And Absolutely. that's a really important step, I think, in a lot of Enlightenment thinking, which we often don't take. It's just... Here's our view. The other people can put up with it. We're I think right. It's a very important wrong. step psychologically mm. in modern therapy as well, like similar to things that we would do in cognitive therapy. But what's the biggest obstacle, Matt, that people are going to encounter when they come to purchase this book? The biggest obstacle <laughs> is going to potentially be that it's it's an it's with a uh, more or less academic press and. Um, this means that the price is, is pretty high. Um, there is an ebook version of the other Enlightenment, which I, of course, would recommend for people, which is like more like forty-five US rather than the other thing. Um, they can get it from the library. If the library, if the library, don't, it's the sort of book they should tell their library to stock. Like, yeah, to that's right, and that, and that, that's why the academic price is so high because it does go to libraries. It's just a shame because. You know, I, I think one of the issues that we're dealing with, we talked a lot about different issues, of course, but I think the universities have um, have have both isolated themselves and sort of been isolated a little bit from, from public debate, which goes on. Yeah. And one of the really exciting things I've found about modern Stoicism is, is it pushes back on that because it says here's a philosophy but it's not going to stay there you know, behind the price walls, behind the, the sort of the walls of the university world. It's it's going to speak to ordinary people. And for me, um, and, and we've talked about it not for other academics, that, that's always been an exciting prospect, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's get it out there. People are thinking they're philosophical animals. Um, everybody thinks they're right. Everybody thinks they have true beliefs. Um, and everybody wants to, wants to, I think, reflect upon their experience to different degrees. Mm-hmm. So it's a shame to me that the universities have, have taken this path and been shunted along it as well. Well, allegedly, according to Plato, Socrates said at his trial, the unexamined life is not worth living. And Socrates went into the Angora 
and encouraged slaves and women and people from all walks of society to do philosophy. But Plato retreated to the groves of academe and mainly talked to privileged young men for some strange reason. And Plato seems to have believed that philosophy wasn't necessarily for everybody. Yeah. You know, it, it was kind of for an elite. But on the basis of Socrates' own remarks as quoted by Plato, that would imply that those people who are not suited to philosophy, like who don't get into the groves of academe, their lives aren't worth living. Like, mm. from what Socrates had said. So there's, uh, to me, in Plato's own writings, there's this real clash yeah, between I these agree. two ideas yeah. about whether everyone should be doing philosophy or yes. whether it's kind of more of a, for an elite. I think we're in a moment where we need to be more Socratic and less Platonic, you know, I, yeah. if, if that's, if the, the opposition is set up in that way, you know, I think, I think academic philosophy needs to think about becoming more Socratic, you know, if it's going to kind of flourish, um, because it's not as though we're facing less philosophical and, and wider issues as, as a human kind of species right now. We're really pushing against big questions in the way that we always have, and there are new big questions. Yeah, so definitely. we need to have a thoughtful population and thoughtful policymakers. We don't need to have the thoughtful people just talking to each other in, in a very refined environment. Yeah. Ancient philosophy, it's the future, right? or it needs to be. So anyway, thank you very much, uh, Matt. That's been a, a really enjoyable discussion. I had a great time, and I'm sure that the listeners did as well. So once more, it's uh, goodbye from me, Donald Robertson, and goodbye from my guest, Matt Sharp. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure, and thanks, everybody, for listening.